You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? This whole party. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? This whole party. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Down with D and D. My name is Sean Merwin, and with me yet again today is Mr. Teos Abadia. Teos, how's it going, sir? I am doing great, Sean. Super excited to be here with our listeners and you. And and, and me. Just thank and you for you. adding. Thank you for editing that in later. Uh, it's true. <laughs> I mean, regardless of the pause there, it's true. Right. It, it, it is. It is the truth. The pause uh, is just my brain. We do enjoy each other's company. We we're not just faking this. It's true. And or are we? Is this or, all a role-playing podcast that's teaching you the tips? That's right. Tips for role-playing, pretending to like someone. <laughs> it's the yeah. latest, greatest game. Well, since our small talk has gone way, way off the rails, why don't we get into some news? Uh, why don't you start with a shout-out yeah. to a very special gentleman? I mean, now that I'm a podcaster, I have to go back and thank the people who brought me here. No, I, I, I want to give a shout-out to James and Tecasso, who finished, uh, I think it was last week, his incredible run as host of the Tabletop Babble Show. Mm-hmm. And that's someone who I've just listened to. I don't even know how long it's been, so many episodes. But he has done an incredible job with the Tabletop Babble Show and series to bring in new voices, mm-hmm. uh, provide different experiences, whatever question you may have about our hobby, he has tackled it on this show. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very true. And, you know, it, when I remember when the show started and, you know, it was very much your typical let's talk about games, let's talk about a product thing. And James commitment to excellence is always on display in everything he does. And that show is just an example of that, you know, how it changed over the years to really bring in, as you say, new voices to tackle controversial subjects that most people are unwilling or unable to address. And so great job, James. Uh, thank you for, you know, for hosting. I know Teos and I have both been on the show, so thanks for that. Yeah. And uh, good luck with your new role with your new MCM. company. Yeah. Yeah. And and it just, you know, his positivity, right? If, if you had to kind of maybe try to, to name one superlative that he brought to our hobby, he's just, Every episode, he makes the the guest feel valued, um, and, and he's just super positive about our industry, and it, it's a wonderful thing to have. Mm-hmm. So catch that last episode. Uh, go back and listen to previous episodes if you've never uh, listened to Tabletop Babble, because I'm sure the, those episodes will remain available and will be just as uh, relevant now as they were when they were recorded. Yeah. Speaking of positive steps in the industry. What I believe is a very positive step was just announced, which is the virtual D&D weekends was officially announced this week. This is an extension of what we've seen with D&D Live and D&D Celebration, which is a type of online convention or mini convention that lets players who may not be able to play otherwise get in their gaming fix and puts them together with the DMs who have been waiting for games and, uh, for the most part, who are pretty good at their jobs 
because they've been vetted. They have been running these online games specifically for a few months now. So it's, it's really a great step for the community to have this official place where you can play your D and D. Yeah. And it's neat to see them leverage this, you know, yawning portal that they've built and they continue to, to refine this portal that's used for ticketing and registration. Mm-hmm. It will open November 2nd for this new virtual D and D weekend program. And through it, you can sign up and get tickets to play games. You, you'll see when you sign up, if you haven't done this in the past, it's all very simple. You go in there and you'll see a bunch of tables and the tables will name what platform the DM is using for the virtual tabletop. So maybe it's just Zoom. If you want more theater of the mind, sign up for that. Maybe it's only Discord. Maybe it's Roll20. Maybe it's uh, Fantasy Grounds. Whatever the, the platform is will be named in that description. So you can sign up for the platform. The games have numbers, so if you want to sign up with your friends, you can coordinate that way. If games are two or four hours, and, and what's offered will vary depending on the particular adventures that are being offered at a particular time. Waldman mm-hmm. Games is who is being contracted to run all of this with Wizards, and so all of their great DMs are coming together through this. They've been doing a bunch of online events. Uh, it feels like nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're in a great position to do this. And they work together, planning how to deploy these things, sharing best tips and so on. So you, so you get a group of DMs that's working together to provide the, these these games to you. It's not just an individual person. And the games are Friday to Sunday, one weekend a month. And they've announced uh, the first dates for the next few months. Mm-hmm. So like November 13th through 15th, December 11th through 13th, and then you know, kind of mid-January, mid-February, um, mid-March. All of those dates have, have been announced. Uh, most of the games at first will be adventurously adventures, but there then there may be opportunities to run uh, different non-AL uh, adventures. And who knows if it works well, they might expand it to even different flavors of D and D. You know, maybe older older editions or or those kinds of things. So, you know, this is a first step in in what will likely be an ongoing process. So it will be very interesting to see what the feedback is, what the uh, participation is, and how this might be expanded to grow the community, grow the game even more. And and one other thing that this is valuable for, I know some people have always said, well, I want to try Roll20, I just don't have the time. Or I want to try Fantasy Grounds, but I just don't have the time. Uh, this is a good way to learn how to at least begin to learn how to use these systems. So if... uh you know, if you're interested in, in learning how to use World 20, a lot of the DMs are great teachers of the system. So you can at least get that feel for how it works as a player. And then maybe you can take the step from player to DM if that's your end goal. Yeah. And that it really is true. I signed up for a fantasy grounds game once. I'd never used fantasy grounds before the game. The DM set some information with a link of like, Hey, here's the thing. If you want to brush up, but you don't have to and had, uh, you know, send some information to them. When we arrived, our characters were set up, and they walked us through things in, like, 20 minutes. And I think none of us knew Fantasy Grounds at that time. And we all had a great game, right? And it's like, now I I know how it works. Right. So all of that, you can find in our show notes links to both the Bald Man Games side of things or the Wizards.com announcement of the virtual play weekend. We had a death in the industry that we wanted to note. Len Lakafka passed away recently, 
and uh, Teos has called him maybe the patron saint of freelancers. Yeah, I raised that question because I was reading uh, historian Shannon Applecline, who I, I love the work he does. He has a really nice column about Len Lakafka's legacy. And one of the things he notes is that Len starts in war games, meets Gary Gygax, and becomes the first non-TSR person to write an adventure for D&D. So he's basically the first freelancer mm-hmm. and the first person entrusted to detail a part of the world of Greyhawk. Yeah, which back then was a very big deal that Gary would have trusted him to do so. Mm-hmm. He also apparently was paid $10,500 to write the trilogy, the L series of adventures, mm. which is more and sometimes much more yeah. than some people are paid today for that kind of word count. Adventures back then were pretty short. Even yeah. if they were big, this might be more than some people are paid today, which is very, very sad. So for all those reasons, like this guy might be the patron saint of freelancers, you know? Yeah. So. yeah and I mean, Back in the 70s, $10,000 yeah. was no joke. Yeah. I mean, it's still no joke today, but back no then, that, that, you know, that was, that was a halfway decent, uh, not maybe a living salary, but, but halfway decent, uh, pay for writing three adventures. So, yeah. So, you know, it, it's pretty interesting to note and, and think back on the legacy that he left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember he wrote, uh, columns for Dragon Magazine that were well received widely read kind of a mainstay of of that publication for years he also played leomund so all those leomund spells yep you know leomund has has passed mm-hmm. but left his legacy for us for sure liar's night we have some new posts about wave two teos you want to talk about those yeah so we talked about this i think last episode or the one before that they have released wave two of encounters for the Liars Night event that they do every year at the Adventures League. You, when you're running a D&D Adventures League adventure, you can throw one of these sort of random wandering monster encounters and they come with rewards. So you have now two waves of them and the third wave will come out this week. By the time this podcast airs, the wave three should be out. So there's a fun things. Even if you're not running AL, you can mine these encounters for ideas. It's a sort of fun way to throw in some October, uh, Halloween kind of fun into your game. Also, they're having now a costume contest. There's a hashtag DDAL and then the hashtag Liars Night. Use both of those on whatever your social media platform is. And you can win a scroll of disguised self for your character, which I think is a great idea. Yeah. Dress up and win something for your actual character. Yeah. I'm going to dress as an exhausted commoner. <laughs> as a freelancer who prays yeah. to Lynn Lakafka. Yes. Uh, so all of this ends November 2nd. If you're doing Extra Life, you can extend it for streams and other Extra Life events through November 9th. The DMs Guild is having a Halloween sale. The sale is ongoing, will be still going for a couple of days after this episode drops. They have reduced the price on some spooky titles. So you could just go to dmsguild.com and click on the Halloween sale link to see Everything that they are selling at reduced price. What is the spookiest thing that you have up there, Sean? The spookiest thing I have up there would be probably uh, the Suits of the Mist, the first adventure for Adventures League. For the Ravenloft. Curse of Strahd season. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I have the Artifact, uh, yep. which is from that same series. Yeah. That's pretty, pretty spooky. Yeah, I remember playing that. I didn't know you had written it, and it was very, it was a very interesting, fun 
adventure, kind of like playing D&D with the game of Clue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So check that out. Uh, speaking of the DMs Guild, there was a title on the Guild that I wanted to mention. Uh, when we started talking about the adventure that we're reviewing um, today and for the foreseeable future, Rime of the Frostmaiden, there is a section in the adventure that talks about character secrets. And one of the things we noted was some of the secrets are cool. Some of them are just kind of blah. Some of them just don't make any sense. And there is a product up on the guild that addresses that issue. It is called Chilled Secrets, Dark Alternatives to the Character Secrets from Rhyme of the Frostbade. And it has tables of different kinds of secrets that you can use. There's the uh, legal entanglements and dark accusations. So if you have sort of a dark past and someone's after you, troublesome family and questionable friends. So you, this secret is there is something in your past that's was uh, brought. It's it's like life, right? Troublesome, troublesome family and questionable friends. That could be my autobiography title, but <laughs> it's it, it it's also uh, a set of secrets in this product. So that's good. Then there's planar entities and profane ties. So things uh, where your entanglements are of the more arcane or planar nature, and then there's blind amb ambition and vain conceit so things that are within yourself that that are the secrets not something that's happened outside of you and so there are there are some really cool ones there are some ones that i wouldn't personally use but there still might be interesting off your campaign so it's a couple bucks on the dms guild are written by john christian zach goines and uh troy sandlin so these are the kinds of products i love to see because they're short, they're quick, and they fill a specific niche that that DMs might need uh, help filling. And so, you know, it's not a long adventure. It's not a big set of races, classes, those kinds of things. It's just it fills this one niche very nicely. Great. You know, also on the DMs Guild, first of all, I have to say, I'm so thankful. My wallet and I are so thankful that there are no new minis announcements this week. <laughs> But uh, someone has gone and created a set of, a, a, it looks like it's the start of an adventure series on the DM skill that lets you fight creatures that have D&D and WizKids minis, which I think ah. is great. I, I've long thought about doing this, and then I never get around to it. So I'm okay. so glad someone has. And they began with the Snowy Owlbear. So there is what's called Snowy Owlbear, Fight Your Minis, Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. And this includes stat blocks for the Snowy Owlbear and various permutations, which is probably good because the Snowy Owlbear generic stat block is pretty blah. And then they have various encounter ideas and also some suggestions on how you can use additional Icewind Dale minis that appear in the Icewind Dale mini set from d Nice. Nice. Well, that will be an interesting series to keep an eye on, though, because that is really a great idea as people... People who are into minis, not that we know many of them, uh, <laughs> will specifically look for adventures that allow them to make the most use of that. So that is, yeah. that is a keen idea. Uh, there is a survey out for D&D Beyond letting you tell them what you would like to see, what you want to see more of on D&D Beyond. Yeah, I, I did this survey. It's pretty interesting. Uh, they ask, you know, sort of what, what brings you to the site, how often to use it, those kinds of things. But a lot of it's really looking at specific questions on the type of content, both blogs and videos that you enjoy 
and that draw you to the site. So I think it's a, a very useful thing to fill out and give your feedback. If you know, it's a good chance to shape what will come in the future. Mm -hmm. Virtual Game Hole Con is on the horizon. It is, if my memory serves, November 5th through 8th. Game Hole Con is generally one of the bigger and more well-attended conventions, especially by people in the industry, such as Wizards of the Coast staff. But it will be virtual this year for obvious reasons. And you can still sign up to play to or to watch people play online. There is a link in our show notes to the page where you can buy your badge and get your link to Discord where everything will be running from and uh, sign up to play, watch, or otherwise partake in the content. Yeah, and there is a new issue of Dragon Plus up. We spoke uh, last week about Dragon Plus, so they just dropped the next one. And there are a number of fun things in this issue. Greg Tito wrote a short story called Ice Out, which is inspired by Rhyme of the Frass Maiden and also the film Knives Out. So that's cool. Congratulations to Greg Tito on releasing a short story. That's, that's I think like a, yeah, it's like a neat checkbox, right? That you yeah. can do a short story for the sort of dragon yep. magazine type thing. That's awesome. They don't do a lot of those, that's for sure. Yeah. And there are a number of fun things. There is, believe it or not, an article both on dogs and on another one on cats. So you can choose what you like the best <laughs> uh, with adventure ideas. There is an article on solo adventures with the sidekick rules. They tell you about the sage advice revisions we covered a couple episodes ago. Adam Lee, who's a great designer, has a behind the screen segment where he talks through how to make monsters scary and takes a couple of different examples of monsters and thinks through whether they should be able to be redeemed or not. Mm. Oh, I should also say that there is a free download of Frozen Offerings as a solo adventure. Mm -hmm. And then the Best of the Dungeon Masters Guild reviews a number of fun adventures, and including giving you a free download of Tomb of the Trickster God. And lots more, your usual free maps as well, which mm. is great. Continuing to put out strong content for DMs and players to pick from. So that's great. Speaking of making things scary, DM Samuel blogged about how to bring horror themes to Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. And this is something when we get into our main topic in just a few minutes that I'm going to talk about a little bit more. What did DM Samuel have to say about it? So he um, was kind of responding to some criticism out there that, that we, you know, we were told like, oh, it's like the thing, this horror movie, and that it isn't really. But he argues that it actually kind of is. It has a lot of these pieces that a movie like that uses, a lot of these elements that a movie will use or a novel will use to create sort of the sense of dread and horror. And he then gives you 12 different ways to bring this out of the adventure and reinforce it. And it's really well done. I really like what he what he describes here. Things like paint a vivid picture, use your voice softly show despair, show death, feel the cold, feel the food scarcity, to the idea of just like bring this in constantly, right? Have NPCs talk about how they're scared, how they're afraid of different elements so that it's constantly registering, right? Mm -hmm. The feeling of the unknown. So there are a lot of really good ideas that I, I would recommend anyone running Rhyme of Frostmaiden should read this blog post. Excellent. 
that leads us directly into part seven of our look at Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. We will today continue with our look at the Ten Towns and the quests that are spawned from those. Just to generally go back through what we've talked about and to give a little preview of our thoughts, or at least my thoughts, one thing that I'm seeing as I review these Ten Towns and their quests is there are drawbacks to presenting the adventure the way this adventure is presented so far. I think it's great for a certain style of DMs. I think it's great for certain styles of campaigns. But one thing that it doesn't present is a great base, a great base of operation, because each of the towns is glossed over pretty quickly. It doesn't really take the time to detail anything more than just a, a touch on what's in the, these towns. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But in terms of a horror campaign, if it is going to be a horror campaign, I think one of the things that's important is to have a base. And for horror to work well, at least in my estimation, you need to be adrift for a bit. But there has to be this base to show change, right? You feel safe in this town, then bad things happen to the town. But if you're constantly moving from town to town and never putting roots down, those roots can't be torn up by horror. Yeah, I agree with you. And the thing is, it's not. this is not an, an adventure that sort of feels like a heroic journey either, right? It's really right. a sandbox adventure. And a sandbox adventure is sort of an interesting thing to with which to then have horror as your main yeah. concept. Right. If we look back at previous uh, hardcover adventures, some of them presented a very specific experience. Right. Tyranny of Dragons was a continuing narrative where you went from one scene to the next scene to the next scene to the next scene. And and that's fine. That was what the experience was supposed to be. It was the first big adventure that they released. And that is not an uncommon kind of campaign so that you really never had a home base. But that's OK, because there there wasn't supposed to be the experience wasn't supposed to be settle down, and then move out from there. It was always constantly moving. Out of the Abyss, again, was a specific experience. It was, you are trying to leave this Underdark area. So that's what the experience called for. Acquisitions Incorporated, completely different experience. This is establish a home base and make your home base great and play around with your home base and settle into your role. and. The adventure was designed in a way to enhance that experience. I feel like this adventure doesn't, not only doesn't have an experience it's trying to present, or at least I haven't seen it yet. I feel like it doesn't provide the tools to create any kind of experience well, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. There, there isn't, like, obviously there's the theme of, we're in a frozen land, right? Like cold and things like that. But, right. but, um, but the, the, the mechanics of how it's set up do not necessarily reinforce uh, these other themes. Right. And, and it's hard to know what the themes should be. And there, there are no tips or hints. There's not, no prompts that are telling the DM, here's how to do this, right? Yeah. And so I think we, when we create games, when we write adventures, we always need to keep this in mind. And 
I am not blaming any of the writers on this project for this because this is a this is an issue, a larger scale issue, right? Individual freelancers, you know, five, ten freelancers working on a project cannot do this on their own. They can only write the small piece that they are given. You know, this yeah. has to be a top down thing where it's looked at and said, all right, how do we expect this product to be used and how can we best present what we're giving them in order to get that experience? Or if we're going to allow them to create their own experience, what tools are we giving and what direction are we giving to enhance that? And yeah. I'm still struggling to find that. Yeah, and, and I would say that Avernus has some of that too. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's not clear what the the DM isn't really given that picture of here's the experience you're supposed to create and the themes you're supposed to reinforce. And there's some obvious things like, well, devils and bargains, but right. things don't drive at that constantly there. It doesn't permeate everything and it does not connect everything. Uh, I'd say Tomb of Annihilation did a much better job of saying, you know, it is about this jungle feeling and this exploration feeling and this lost kingdoms feeling and we over time that's continually reinforced right there we have to hire people to get us out into the jungle um we find ruins constantly right it, it, those themes are reinforced perpetually right and that right. works really well yep so just with that in mind as a general overview we will continue now going through the final seven towns of the ten towns looking at the town itself, and the quest that spawned from that town. Next on our list is Kerr Koenig. On the Snowflake scale, its friendliness is two, its services are two, and its comfort is a full three. So not a thriving town, but also not the least hospitable that we've seen. Its population is 150. It sits on the shore of Lac Denishir. It started as a camp uh, for mountaineers from the northern Moonsee region. At the camp grew, it got a palisade around it to discourage raiders, and later they built a actual an actual stone castle that the care is named after. But the palisade nor the castle fared very well, falling to orcs, and then the whole thing fell into ruin. And it sits at the base of Kelvin's Cairn, so one of the larger mountains in the area. The places within it that are given to us are the Hook, Line, and Sinker Tavern. And this is pretty clever. It's a funny story. It's named the Hook, Line, and Sinker because the proprietor, Glenn Kaur, when you come in, the hook is he gives you a free beer. The line is, well, now you're compelled to stay for seconds and thirds. And then the sinker is the last call when the drinking contests begin and you end up sunk underneath the table. <laughs> That's good. Yep. Also, here is Frozen Far Expeditions, a place where you can buy gear, dog sleds, dogs, or you can hire a guide, a dwarf named Jarthra Farzash. Say that 10 times fast. Yeah, no, thank you. The Northern Light is an inn run by bickering sisters, Corey and Ali Sherard. And it's called the Northern Light because normally a magical lantern that changes color hangs in front of the inn, but... Alas, it has been stolen. And that's what brings us into the quest. The quest is called The Unseen. Did you want to mention anything before we get into the quest about the town? Or am I good? To uh, I'll just make a quick mention that this town is one of the, it's, it's sort of your home base when you're playing the Neverwinter MMO back when they 
did their sort of more fourth edition D&D Next based take on Icewind Dale, they used this town as the base. Excellent. I was not aware of that because I don't play the MMO, but yeah. that's that's uh, good to know. Was this tavern there? In, in the... Uh, the hook, line, and sinker is there, and frozen far expeditions are there, and, and they form a sort of central experience in that, you know, this is before Acquisitions Incorporated. You sort of invest through their campaign me- mechanism. You invest in both of these places and another one to get sort of shares in them, and you help sort of them grow back up, and you get, like, free stuff from them as a result. Cool. Well, the uh, all three of these places, uh, actually two of them, Frozen Far and the Northern Light, play into the quest. Invisible thieves are stealing things from the villagers, including this magical lantern that sat in front of the Northern Light. So the characters meet when they enter town. Trovis, the speaker of the town, who is a dragon-born veteran, he is searching for the thieves, but he is A, not able to find any clues and be horribly drunk most of the time. So he asks, well, first he accosts the characters thinking that they are the thieves. Obviously, he is drunk beyond uh, comprehension to even know what's happening. So he asks the characters to find the thieves and clues point to dwarf tracks leading out of town toward Kelvin's Cairn. And you know, you get a few clues, people saying, well, no, no dwarf can be that quiet. So it can't be a dwarf, even though it's dwarf tracks, which gives a little clue as to who the the bad guys might be. But what, what are dwarves that can sneak or be invisible? Well, that's Durgar. So the characters can then begin to follow the tracks. They have a good, quick exploration mechanic that's not overly drawn out, but it does have consequences. While you're tracking, if you have two failures, it calls for a random encounter. And then, boom, you get back on track. And then, you know, that's just a very quick and easy way to make exploration meaningful without either glossing over it or making it inconsequential, essentially. So when the characters finally do find the Dwarven outpost, it's carved into the hillside at Kelvin's Cairn. And... I want to draw, I'm going to do a really in-depth, deep dive into box text here. So bear with me. I looked at the map for this area, and it was really cool. It's a really cool map. I I could see all these cool things that you could do with it. And then I read the box text. Now, you have to understand the map, it looks like kind of a horseshoe. So a canyon ending in a dead end, and then there's a door and a couple of places where the uh, there's openings that you can see out of the side of the hill that this is carved into for a guard outpost, basically. So the box text starts thusly. A blocky stronghold bereft of warmth or charm juts out of a hillside in a rough crescent shape. And I, I'm the, my first thought was, I can't even parse that. Okay, a blocky stronghold. So I see blocky stronghold, I think a fort. Uh, bereft of warmth and charm. I don't know what that means. I, I, are there charming strongholds? I don't, I don't understand what that means. I love when words are used to create sensory things. I love when words give clues for something that might come later. This is just odd. 
And something like Cold Dark Stone might have worked better or Bleak and Desolate or something right. like that. But yeah. Right. Okay. So and a very small thing, right? It's not, This is not a huge thing. This is me being very nitpicky. A blocky stronghold bereft of warmth and charm juts out of a hillside. So when I think juts out of a hillside, I think of a hill with something sticking out of it. This is literally the opposite. This is in a, oh, and then it says juts out of a hillside in a rough crescent shape. So what I see is like a circle and then jutting out of it is something sticking out. And this is, like I said, literally the opposite. It's, it's like a horseshoe shape. So it's inside and there are a few little parts that of, of, of buildings of walls that come out of the hill, but most of it is actually set into the hill. So right from the start, that description, it's, if I read that description without seeing the map, I would think it would be just the opposite of what the map showed. It makes you wonder if something got changed here or if maybe the map was designed by a different person that wrote the text or that, any number of things like that. That that is that is that was my question. Yeah, and that I that never is... I'm never too harsh on the writer here. No. I'm where I look at this is this is the developer. Yeah. Because there are gonna be things that happen like this. And I guarantee that anything I've written and I'm sure some things you've written has moments like this. And then that's when I, when I ever compare an AB comparison of what I turned in, what came out at the end, mm-hmm. usually I'm very pleased to see that someone corrected that mess that I handed in yeah. into because they saw it, right? They saw this and then they, they had the thoughts that we're having right now and they go, mm-hmm. well, that needs to change. And I'm going to change it for you. And so it's very strange that this did not get changed because right. it is, yeah, it's the sort of opposite impression one gets between the box text and the map. Sure. And, and I mean, that you, you stole my thunder because that's what I was going to say. Oh, at the, sorry. At the, no, no, it's totally fine. This will make me sound less like the jerk that I am uh, because you're, you're absolutely right. There, there is no single person, and blame is even a strong word, right? There is no single person that, that caused this disconnect between the map and, and, and I just taking the finished product for what it is, you know, this is something that, I am always aware of, I try to be aware of in my own writing, right? When I go back and I reread and I say, okay, as the DM who's about to run this, does this make sense? The the next sentence is only part of its construction is visible. The rest is buried in the stone. How do you know? How would a character know that? They they see a door, right? This is making, starting to make assumptions that things that the characters wouldn't know. Uh, A large double door of stone serves as the main entrance. How do you know? How do you know what the main entrance is versus these other right. things versus a hidden entrance? A main entrance is sort of a a subjective thing, unless you're looking at a castle with obviously here's the drawbridge, right? So so it's just there are other doors. So how do you know this is the main entrance? They talk about frozen waterways where a stream used to flow out. How do you know a stream used to flow out? And let, right, it, it's it's this weird thing. Two other barred openings can be seen along the stronghold's northern wall. Anyone positioned behind these openings would have an unobstructed view of the hillside. So, again, you're, there's these assumptions because later we read that there is actually a path you can take that is obstructed from view. Yeah. So it's it, that kind of when I see that, it's like, well, we can't sneak up on it. But you actually can uh, drawn on the map is this little dotted line that shows where you can go. 
Closer to you, separated from the rest of the stronghold, is a snow-covered stone bunker perforated by arrow slits. My first thought is, if it's snow-covered, how can it? Ha- how can you see the arrow slits? And then there's someone in it watching. If it's snow-covered, how can they see? It's it's just this, there's this yeah. bizarre sort of disconnect and obfuscation and, and a little just confusion about what is actually happening. And as as a box text writer, it's very hard. We've talked about this endless, endless times. It's very hard to write good box text. So keeping it simple is always the best thing. Let the DM do the heavy lifting in terms of what the characters can and can't see or can and can't figure out. So just give the barest details possible. And then and this is not enormously long, right? I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's kind of, it's three paragraphs, but one of them is a sentence, one of them's two. Right. But, but when it gets even that length, I think as an author, you want to look at it because I'm super guilty of big box text. Everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. If they looked at my work, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you want to look at it and go like, is this really, am I imparting too much information? And are all the words I'm using creating really more confusion than they are clearing things up? Exactly. Exactly. So despite the the box text issues I had, I love the map and I love the layout. There is a safe path that the characters can sneak along. So make that clear, DMs. It doesn't have to be made clear by you saying there is a path you can sneak up, but have them do an investigation check. Have them use a skill to see wait, if those are lookout points, if I take this path right next to the mountainside, they won't be able to see me. And then it gives sort of a typical little dungeon crawl. There is a main hall. In the main hall, there are locked cages with potential enemies in them, but it doesn't say how easily the cages are to open. It doesn't say if they're locked. It doesn't say if they can be opened or not. You assume they're locked because there are things inside them. So it's just a little confusing. So just think it through ahead of time. There is an area that is a trap, and it is a very clever trap. It's a kind of trap I like, which is it's meant to separate one character from the rest of the characters and then have something attack. However, the where the trap is put, the trap is meant to damage something, but it's put right between two squares on the map. And characters can't inhabit between squares if you're using a map. So if you're running Theory of the Mind, great. You just drop it on them. But if you're running it using minis on a map, there's where the trap comes down is never going to be able to pin a character unless you put them between two of the squares. So, again, keep that in mind. If if you are running on a map, put the trap that comes down and you know, it's just a, a cage that, that falls, a cage door, a, a trap door that, not a trap door, a gate or whatever that comes straight down. Well, maybe the idea, is that supposed to be that there's a little, are, are there sort of like two doors into that room and it springs on either side? Like, is that supposed to be a little like column or something between two doorways? See, that's a great question. That would be something I would love to read about in the text. That may be what it is. And so maybe the idea is that it, on either side of that little like pillar thing, I don't know. It's a, it, it does say divided in the long room, divided in the middle by two open doorways. So maybe that's what it is. And so those two doorways get filled by those spikes and then it works. Okay. I See, I, that, that's when I read it, that wasn't the way I read it. DM so, should think through this and yeah, exactly. have a plan. <laughs> 
and and if if it's if it's just going to be separating a character from the rest of the characters and getting attacked, that's great. Then just have it do that. It doesn't have to do damage. You just need to kind of think think that through. So the entire quest is that these Durgar are searching for Shardle. And so they they go out and search, they go invisible, they go into town, they look around, and the Durgar who is doing this is the brother of the Durgar who is set up in Lonelywood, which we will discuss later, and is the son of the Durgar who is the overall villain behind the creation of this Shardalin dragon that's going to be used to attack the Ten Towns. So this is possibly the first look that you're going to have at that plot. The clue that you're given at the end of this can either be if they capture the Durgar alive, he says, you know, you you may have caught me, but wait, my brother, blah, blah, blah. Or there's a note that sends the characters to Lonelywood. I'm sorry, not Lonelywood, East Haven, to set up the plot that's going to, to happen there. And there is a lot going on in that town, as we will find out. So you, if you, if they find that note, it basically tells them exactly where to go when they get to East Haven. I am saying the right one, right? I've got way too many tabs open. East Haven. Okay, cool. Uh, so just be aware that if you give that away, that takes away any investigation they need to do about that specific location in East Haven. They'll probably go to East Haven and say, Hey, where's the ferry? Oh, there. Here we go. And, I'll, and I'll, they'll march right to the ferry. And I think that's fine. You know, East Haven is, has a lot to it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons I think it's a good choice for an initial town. So you could start here and link to it that way. But uh, but East Haven's got a lot going on. So it's fine if you spoil, quote unquote, spoil this. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the characters feel good. I like design-wise that there are two ways to get the info because speaking to the boss doesn't tend to happen right most characters just murderize the enemy and then yep. later someone will go hey you know we could have maybe asked him a question so uh, having the note is smart design gives you that fallback if they murder it <laughs> they will they get to pick you know still get some information mm-hmm. but yeah, you know, overall i really like this because the the quest is short enough uh it doesn't drag on for too long and you can really just get right to it as opposed to some of the other quests that we'll talk about that I think are a little too much that go on a little too long. I like that this is short and to the point and it gets you into one of the major quests of the adventure. Yeah. All right. So up next is Dugan's hole. Dugan's hole is probably one of my, uh, I have the most problems probably with this place and and it's down to a simple thing that we'll, we'll get to. Uh, well, I'm just going to say it up front and, and, mm-hmm. and it's that, you know, I did time in North Carolina. I went to high school there. I'm, I have a good feeling for the southern areas of the United States. And I know why we use humor all the time for them. But it's sort of like we've come along to where we now do not try to do stereotypes and overly harmful tropes around any particular peoples and so on. And, and yet the last remaining one that seems to be okay is Southerners. We can still make jokes about being inbred and dumb and uneducated and all package it in a way that's very obviously Southern. And and that's what Dugan's Hole does, which it didn't, I don't think, really do in the lore before. 
I mean, Dugan's Hole was a sort of backwater town, but it added to it now are accents that are Southern mm-hmm. uh, in the way that they're written. And then there is you know, a number of things, as we'll see, that, that kind of push that up. And all of it just sort of weighs on me a bit. And again, I've done, I've been in North Carolina. I've made many a Southern joke and imitated a Southern accent, but it just all packages around together as an official D&D work. I think it's time to start taking that kind of thing out. Mm-hmm. So Dugan's Hole wins the award for only a single snowflake in friendliness, services, and comfort. So much mm-hmm. for Southern hospitality. The quest here is holed mm-hmm. up. Uh, the population is 50, which is down half from what it was in Legacy of Crystal Shard just four years ago. It is the smallest and poorest town and the furthest away from everything. It's located on the Redwaters Lake, just south of Goodmead. So in Dugan's Hole, townsfolk approach you to ask you for help with their wolf problem. And this is one of those things that how you feel about this will vary. I've heard a number of different feelings about this on the internet with the awakened animals. I think that can be quite fun, especially when done well. Uh, You did that greatly in in your intro adventure. So there are two awakened winter wolves named Koran and Kanan who are working for an awakened woolly mammoth named Norsu. And they periodically come out here and basically demand food and gold from the town in order to sort of like the extortionists. It's not exactly clear in the text how this happens. Like, is someone filling up saddlebags? Are they just carrying away some food in their, like, how, how are they taking food and gold? Not, you know, it's, there's a little bit that feels a little weird, but I guess that's the idea is that people say, hey, we're being, we have this problem with wolves and they're sort of extorting. The big thing that just happened is that two teenagers, Silja and Finn, brother and sister, were kidnapped and they want you to go rescue them. The speaker is no help at all, which is a thing that often, ha- often happens in adventures where you're sort of given a quest, you're going to want some more information, you're going to go want to talk to people, and people are not going to help you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's kind of like, what's the purpose of that? Yeah. Like, why make the, the person in charge useless? Give them a little bit of information that they can give to you. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also kind of stubborn. And if I were to create a, storm, a stubborn NPC, I, would, I prefer, if I interact with one, I prefer if it's one where I can change it somehow. Mm-hmm. right win them over when i read this i thought hey maybe this changes later like later on you know they come around and, and like you more uh but i'm not expecting that yeah so what'll end up happening is that you end up meeting these two winter wolves Kanan and corin and they're going to try to trick you into going to where the pcs already want to go the reason that the winter wolves do this is because they expect that the woolly mammoth norsu will kill them very easily okay and then a blizzard hits and the wolves apparently help you, which is sort of interesting. And then when you arrive at the place, they actually hang out outside figuring, oh, well, Norse will kill them. <laughs> so we'll just stay outside. It's a little bit weird. And what's strange is that, you know, the whole time the DM sort of has this knowledge of what's really going on. And the players sort of think, oh, yeah, the wolves are helping us out. Uh, the place is extremely cool. It's an old frost giant lodge. There are several entries. Differences. Um, so it's possible that you can have a very different experience depending on which way um, you approach this. Uh, and I like that about the design. Uh, and, and it's it's right. It's, the three entrances entrances are right in the front, so you know that you kind of have to choose which way to go. Mm-hmm. I think this also is something that can reinforce that sense of horror, right? Because you're going in 
a particular way. You don't know. And one of them flickers a torchlight. So you're probably going to, unless you want a con direct confrontation, probably going to avoid that. And you can actually accomplish a fair bit, depending on which way you go, without alerting anyone. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible you can even free the teenagers without a fight. That's kind of interesting. And it's even possible you can avoid a fight when you encounter Norsu. It, but one thing that's interesting, you have to sort of declare that you want to do this. Basically, the moment you see Norsu, there's going to be a fight. Mm -hmm. And so you would have to choose to say an initiative, to speak out on your initiative count and, and go before Norsu in order to talk them down, which is sort of, you know, that doesn't tend to happen a lot. And what I would say design-wise, if you want characters to, and DM-wise, if you want characters to interact with something, you need to allow for that. Because as soon as you roll initiative, players glaze over and go into combat mode. Yeah, that's that's unfortunately very true. And you know, as a player, it's always hard to give up an action that you that can be so valuable, especially at low levels, yeah. to do something that may be totally irrelevant. Yeah, and, and maybe they aren't supposed to give up an action, but you know, that it's that kind of question of, you know, that's where you need that that guidance to exist. Yeah. No, it it does say any character who can act before Nursu first can use an action to attempt to calm the mammoth before it attacks. Oh yeah, that's so, probably not happening. Yeah, it, the I mean, whole action seems yeah. And, unless and again, the druid already said they wanted to talk to it and goes first, you know. Right. Yep. So there are some some fun elements. Uh, Frost giant's throne that's in this uh, old Frost giant ice lodge. It's magical. It can summon a blizzard. I immediately think, gee, I wonder whether you can move this. Because if I know the players that I run this for, they would be like, well, let's put this on a sled and we will have our portable blizzard generator come along with us wherever we go. <laughs> Snowmaker. Yep. Nice. One really nice element is that three kobolds have snuck into this place and they are hiding in a room, very afraid of these awakened animals. So that can create a neat interaction. And there's a Remoraz tunnel from long ago that was used by Remoraz to dig into this place. And actually, we get a nice piece of ecology and treasure here. I really, really love this design where the left in this tunnel is apparently what Remoraz secretes shortly before giving birth. Hmm. And so you can find this valuable residue which becomes your treasure and sort of a neat, you know, great opportunity for like the ranger or druid to shine here, someone who knows nature. Oh, nice. uh, it also provides an escape route if you are trying to run away from these animals. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I like a lot of what's going on at the Frost Giant Lodge. And then it ends on my least favorite part of this section, which is that when you get back, presumably with the teenagers, you are told so you, re you bring the, the, the kids back to the mother, Hilda, and she is overjoyed that you've done this. And it says here, treasure. Hilda married her older brother, who was a hunter. He passed away, but left behind some magic boots. He won from a wayward adventurer. And so you get these boots. And it's like, really? Did we have to throw in incest? Like, Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, you're right that the connection between incest and the southern accent, you know, that's that's. That's the problem. With me. You know, incest is is a obviously it is not a good thing for in terms of, you know, continuation of the species. But it, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Sociologically, worldwide, you know, it, it is something that has happened. And 
rather than just making if you're going to do it, you, you're absolutely right. You don't just say she married her older brother. Boom, that's it. Right. Because what we're doing here is it's only, it's it's neutral. Right. And when it's neutral, there's the danger that it's somehow acceptable or right. Oh, it just is, right? Because what do you, you know, like you can't, you can't do anything. You can't get mad at Hilda. Like, you know, what do you, you know, right. And there's no, there's nothing you can do. And you can't really even feel, I mean, you can feel sorry for her, but there's nothing actionable here. Right. If you're going to give me the storyline, give me something actionable. That's, and that's, that's it, right? That's the thing. If they are in such dire straits in this town that this is the only way they can survive, that's something the characters can do something about. Right. Right. That's, that's something that, hey, let's bring in settlers or let's take people from here to there. That's something that characters can. It's a problem and it's a problem they can solve. So let's make that part of the plot if you are going to bring up that subject. Uh, otherwise, just leave the subject out completely because, as you said, it doesn't add anything to the adventure. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, for a large number of people who would run this town, it, it's sort of like, yeah. Okay. You're making fun of us. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's absolutely a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. So one more town, I think we can sneak in, even though it is the largest town. Yeah. And that is East Haven. Uh, it's not the largest town in terms of size, but it is the largest town in terms of plot. <laughs> so on the snowflake scale, it has two friendliness, three services and three comfort. So there is a lot of services and a lot of comfort and fairly friendly. Uh, the population is 750 down from 1500, maybe. And uh, so when I think of East Haven, I think of Deadwood. Um, it was founded by thieves. They refused these thieves uh, to kowtow to the powerful thieves guild where they lived before. So they migrated to Icewind Dale and started their own little thievy haven, East Haven. So there are watch thy pouch signs posted in various establishments because pickpocketing is essentially legal. It's an interesting idea. This so sort of like constant pickpocketing is interesting. Right. It's uh, as long as you don't get caught, it's not illegal. <laughs> and so there you go. There is a lot happening in East Haven in terms of this adventure. The first thing is there is this iced in ferry that is serving as a Durgar hideout. So if you played Kerr Koenig previously, the players might come to this town next because they have a clue as to what's happening here. So the, the ferry is detailed. It tells of the Duragar that are hiding there. And sort of a similar thing that was happening in Kerr Koenig is happening here. These Duragar are turning invisible and looking for Shardlin, stealing things, otherwise making a nuisance of themselves. The locations that are given are the Wet Trout Tavern. The current owner is a dragonborn, a white dragonborn, who worships Oriel. So she's kind of in a strange situation because she is the she supports the main bad guy of the adventure. Um, and and sacrificing, right? And and, and sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah. We should sacrifice things for the prospaten, including humanoids. So you know it. Not much else is happening at the tavern itself, but that is an interesting concept to keep in mind. Um, if you get into philosophical debates in your games, I guess this could be one of those things where this chaotic neutral dragonborn is on the side of Oriel, 
not necessarily, you know, going around killing people, but not complaining when people are killed. And and it's not, you know, I think in Icewind Dale uh, lore, it's fairly established that, you know, you have ragged barbarians who look up to Aureol and you can worship her from different perspectives. And so this doesn't mean you're evil. Right. But more that you, you know, it can be from its own fine angle mm-hmm. of, of just sort of we must, she is a powerful force and we must uh, appease. Uh, yeah. know, appease her. Yep. One thing that could be cool is if you have questions about Aureal or Aureal cultists, you know, here's someone who maybe could give you insights. And that sure. could be a fun thing to do as a DM. Right. Uh, as, as characters are, that's a great point, Teos. As characters are getting into the meat of the adventure, they may need information and that would be a good source. Yeah. This, the second location is called the White Lady Inn. Uh, in this inn is a bard named Ronaldo who likes to tell ghost stories. Telling, uh, he tells the story of the White Lady, a what everyone assumes is sort of just a figment of his imagination, a way to make a few coin by telling stories. But he invites the characters to a seance. And when he does so in the back room of the White Lady Inn, this ghost actually appears. Now, it could appear in a form that is helpful to the characters and gives them some information in the form of rumors that might help them later. Or if they fail their persuasion check, it attacks as a poltergeist. And, you know, so this is kind of neat because when the ghost appears, you can't see it or see her, but she writes her answers on the window, you know, the frosty window of the inn. And if she gets very angry, she shatters the window. Now, here you've got some horror elements, right? Yeah. And that's really cool. It's a really cool way. You know, rather than, hey, barkeep, what are some rumors, right? Here's a whole scene, and there could be combat involved, and there could be all these spooky, ghostly things happening. And how fun to, like, run this with the lights low or off even, right? Right. Maybe like a single candle and run this event. Yep. I love the art for this, too. Oh, yeah, the the art in the book for that. You have to show your players because... You know, it is it is really nice. So kudos on this very cool scene. And the white lady actually will appear later in our little talk, which I like. You know, more and more connection. The quest that you get is called Toil and Trouble. Now, with all these cool things that we've seen, right? We've got the Duragar here. We've got the white lady. The Toil and Trouble quest is completely different. And not only that, it's introduced in a very different sort of way. So when the f- players first come to town, a Thayan res- red wizard named Zan was convicted of murder and is going to be burned at the stake. Not only is he going to be, he is as the characters get there. <laughs> so the execution takes place in box text. Depending on your players, this may cause some some trouble, both in turn, both in game and out of game. But you know, it it is trying to create an experience. So if your players are cool with it, then I guess you just run with it. Because if they are allowed to save Zan, uh, he's not a great person. So one way, if you think your players are going to be like, oh, we can't even do anything, have Zan be Zan before he dies. Like, like have him say, I'm going to kill you all if you let me go. Uh, you know, all of these things just to to make it known that he actually was a pretty nasty piece of work and 
while this is a quote unquote sacrifice to a real, it's also just capital punishment, which we may or may not, you know, whatever your thoughts on it in real life are, it's something that happens in D and D from time to time in campaign. So again, we, I don't know, talk it through with your players beforehand, get a feel for what they accept and don't accept in their, in their narratives, because this is, uh, this is happening. The weird thing about this, well, the box text tells you that his execution is, quote, for the crimes he has inflicted upon Dale folk, but they never really go into any other detail. So even if the players say, well, what did he do? It's not really told to you explicitly. It's not like, oh, he killed these 17 people, right? It's just like he did the bad things. So make it something bad to get this idea across. And why is this important at all? Because design has a simulacrum that you're going to meet later in the adventure, but it's not told to you explicitly here that that's the case. Yeah. It's not told to the DM, which is, which is right. It's, it's not told to the players or the DM. Really? You have to follow a couple of links to an appendix where you can learn that. But unless you do that, you don't even know that design will appear as his simulacrum later. So you, you may want to drop some clues to say what he looks like or something about him that will be memorable because seven levels down the road, (laughs) the characters are going to run into him again. And if you want that to have any impact at all, you need to set that up here. So just keep that in mind. And and it is a cool, that later piece is really cool. So, so you do really want this to sort of happen. I think it's great if they're in East Haven and they see this, so that you get that payoff later. But I agree that you need to somehow reinforce that this person is truly evil. Things like, you know, if, you know, like maybe you you're, are standing next to someone in town that goes, I'm so thankful this is happening because I, I heard otherwise, you know, my dad was going to be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now he has another month, you know, right. thanks to this. Like, oh, you know. Yeah. It's something like that, right? Just, right. <laughs> if he doesn't get murdered, someone good, it will be. <laughs> right. Uh, so after after this scene, which is, you know, it, hugely controversial, hugely important, although we don't know that it's important, Imdra, the captain of the East Haven militia, asked the characters to search for some missing fisher folk. So you can go out, and this is where the quest actually starts. Um, the fisher folk's boat can be found near a cave entrance, actually three cave entrances. We're getting a theme here of different ways that you can enter the the mm-hmm. quest final dungeon area. And the first thing that happens is some harpies attack. Uh, harpies are rough. If if you're at only first or even second level, harpies can be very rough. So be careful with that. If they're third level, uh, okay, you're probably getting into territory where it's fine. First or second, be very, very careful. And, and to be clear, two things, right? They fly. So they can stay out of reach if they want to, yep. which is really rough at low levels. You don't have any option. Um, so consider not doing that. And they have the ability to charm you. Yeah. And they can, when, when they charm you, just in case you aren't up on your harpies, normally if you're charmed and you take damage, you snap out of it or at least have a chance to. If the harpy that charmed you is the one attacking you, you don't. I'm fairly sure that's the rule. So that's right. That's That's very rough. You're incapacitated, you ignore the songs of other harpies, and you basically try to be right next to the harpy. Yeah. You won't avoid opportunity attacks. 
you do get to repeat the saving throw at the end of your turns, but it's nothing based on damage. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. The the right. over the overall. I'm going to try to summarize this because we're running low on time. Uh, the overall quest here is is okay. I feel like this is the first one I've read that I feel like the maps are really cool, but they don't have enough content with them to justify having this big map and these overly expansive descriptions of the areas. I feel like these could be done with like two rooms and nothing would be lost. Uh, in this area, there is an area where it, now this is cool, but it doesn't play out in terms of anything that the characters will, will interact with or do. Um, one chamber has cave drawings of frost giants sacrificing themselves in a pool, but it's, it's never explained what it means or what happens or what your characters can do about it. In, in another area, you see frost giants frozen into the walls. Again, very cool detail. What does it mean? It doesn't mean much. And it doesn't necessarily achieve horror. Right. Or something else like that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and that's what I'm waiting for a horror aspect. Now, the, one of the skeletons, there's a, there's a frost giant skeleton that does rise up out of this room that's filled with bones. But that's not horror. That's a skeleton rising up and attacking a la any D&D adventure that, that you see. So I just, I, I want, I see this beautiful map with all these intricate details, three different ways you can enter. I want it to, to mean more. I want there to be an exploration portion of it that, that is meaningful if you're going to give me this. Otherwise, just give me the, two chambers and the the things that happen in those chambers uh, because these are just the kind of kickoff quests and i i just and I, i've i've only started feeling it when i get to this particular one and then that feeling carries on more for me the the whole point of this one is there's a hag who is killing and eating things <laughs> that part is definitely your gruesome yeah. horror type yep yeah i mean it's it's totally you can totally play it up. Uh, the problem is that hags are so overdone by this point in, in 5e. Uh, I think every adventure I've seen has hags doing sort of similar things. And it sort of loses its its effect uh, when used so much. At least to me, uh, because I've been running adventures now for the last whatever, you know, 5e adventures right. for over and over and over. But, you know, you can either defeat her or you can make a deal with her to spare her life and she will pull you up a treasure from the bottom of the lake. And she keeps to her word. If you let her go, she says in an hour, come to this point along the lake shore and you will find treasure. And sure enough, it's there. There are craw four crawling. Claws. Yeah, there are crawling claws that come out after you too, but the, you know, the treasure is there, you know, Sean, yes, most agreements, Come with a few claws. That's true. That's true. You always, you always have to read every clause. Mm -hmm. um, the most important thing that you get here is a cauldron of plenty. It is a cauldron that magically creates stew that can feed a town. So if you find this and you take it back to town, you are everyone's best friend. And they want to pay you a lot of gold for this because it can feed their town. And food is at a premium right now. And maybe they can stop sacrificing people if they have this cauldron. Right. And that's a point that's not made that I, I did, didn't read it, but that's an important point. 
Well, and I think they get to that with this whole town hall capers, right? I, I am right. glad when I first read it, I thought, oh, they're not going to say anything about this, but they do then give you these capers. And yep. I think that's meant to reinforce that, which is yep. cool. Yeah, and the capers are cool. So once you get, there are two capers. One involves the cauldron. Uh, one involves the Shardland masthead that was brought back to East Haven by some fishermen. The cauldron caper is, the cauldron comes back, and one of the other speakers I think it's Target. Yeah. Learns from a spy that he has in East Haven that this cauldron's here. So thugs are sent to steal it. And if the players are guarding it, then they fight the thugs. Otherwise, they f- later find the guards were killed. And then they have to try to track down where the cauldron was taken. The Shardlin caper is, has to deal with the Durgar who are there. There is a Shardlin infused masthead that's being kept in the town hall. The Durgar find out about it, and they break in to try to steal it. This, by the way, is a nice piece of lore here. That This is the masthead that uh, showed up in Legacy of the Crystal Shard. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, you know, after those events, which maybe your your players had a hand in, not the characters, but the players. So now this masthead of this boat's on display, which is kind of cool. That is cool. Uh, so that uh, is another caper that the characters may try to foil or have to deal with after it happens. You definitely want, I think, as the DM, to have them directly involved rather than in the aftermath. Yeah. So, so you want them to be on hand for some reason when this caper goes down to make it more of an active thing rather than, okay, one more thing we need to follow tracks and investigate because there are enough of those already in this adventure. And there are neat elements. I mean, they give you maps for the town hall, so you can decide, you know, how do we want to protect this town hall, yep. uh, which gives that sort of, you know, protect the base sort of, sort of scenario. Yep. Um, and you mentioned the white lady. Yep. The white lady reappears here. Uh, when the characters go in to see, view the masthead, there is a woman tied to it. And sort of a la the ring, right? She has her head down and her hair in her face, so you can't see her face. And then when they get close to her, she whips her head back and she's a ghost, the ghost of the white lady, and can age them and do all the horrible things that ghosts can do. So it's it's neat that they bring this uh, this piece back in a progression rather than just having it be this old, this one thing that's just hanging out there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, right? You think of like, okay, you've got these towns that have this this tiny little thing you do. And then East Haven somehow has all these quests. And what's funny is a lot of this work, like this whole, the, the two capers, the earlier quest, right? None of that is technically a quest that levels you. Right. Only that the, the rescue the fisherman is technically one that levels mm-hmm. you, is yeah. what I understand. It almost felt like to me, and I have no way of knowing this is right, and it's probably not. But this feels to me like maybe when this was first conceived, this whole adventure, that East Haven was the base and that these were the quests that you would start at at low levels because there's so much more about East Haven, so much more going on in East Haven than, say, in Goodmead. Right. That I just I just get that feeling. (laughs) Or they turned it into a freelancer and told them, you know, write 500 words and they turned in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Five thousand more that, than they were supposed to. Or, that, I don't that, know. that could be too. That could be too. So, 
We have now made our way through six of the towns. Can I say one more fascinating piece here? And that is that I don't, it's not entirely clear, like, you know, exactly how you'd end up at this. But if you happen to go to the town library, it has the spell book that Zahn had. Yep. And if by some weird reason they were to get that, that could also figure into uh, later events because one of the problems is the simulacrum can't, get spells because it lacks the spell book right so for some reason you had this that could be and end up being part of the the story later so you can decide whether you want to push up that aspect but i like that east haven has i mean a dm can really do a lot with these mm-hmm. different stories that are going on here the seance the two different capers that you could run both if you'd like there, there's a lot that you could do here yeah based on what i've read so far if i was going to establish a base it would be east haven it seems to have the most going on and it does have these different threads that you could follow. So yeah, with that, that is a definitely full episode. Plus um, we will see if we can finish up the 10 towns in our next episode. I think we can do it. I think we can too. So for all our listeners out there, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate uh, having your ear for another week. If there's anything that we can do to make your listening easier or instruct you better in the things that we're talking about, please let us know. You can let us know on social media. You can let us know through our website. You can let us know via what Teos is about to tell you where you can find him. <laughs> find me on Twitter at AlphaStream or on my blog, alphastream.org. I recently talked about adventure design there. And I also check out the Misdirected Mark forums. Mm-hmm. And you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. The Misdirected Mark forums are at forums.misdirectedmark.com. And our show's Twitter address is at DownWithDND. DownWithDND is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Mr. Abadia, what would you like to do now? Let's go kill some monsters, Sean. I like that. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D?